I titled my message this morning, The Sine Qua Non of Salvation. I decided I would mix things up a little bit so that you had a little English and a little Latin, because you needed that. The phrase, sine qua non, means without which, not. And it refers to that which is essential, that which is necessary, that which is required before something else can happen. Chocolate chips are the sine qua non of chocolate chip cookies. You ain't got chocolate chips, you ain't got chocolate chip cookies. You tracking? Wind is the sine qua non of kite flying. You ain't got no wind, you ain't got no fighting kite flying. You got to have it. When it comes to Christianity, the sine qua non is the death and resurrection of Christ. If you don't have those two things, you don't have Christianity. And more importantly, you don't have salvation. More specifically, you don't have forgiveness. In Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, famous chapter, chapter 15, called the resurrection chapter, Paul goes out of his way to describe what life would be like if the resurrection did not happen. Now, Paul mentions both the death and the resurrection of Christ. But follow this way. You can have death without resurrection. But you can't have resurrection without death. So when Paul refers to the resurrection and its centrality, he is referring to both death and resurrection, together they are the sine qua non of our salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith You are still in your sins. If there is no resurrection, meaning that you have to have the death and the resurrection of Christ together, if there is no resurrection, our faith is vacuous. It has nothing to hang on to. There's no anchor. And consequently, there is no forgiveness of sin. You've got to have the package. 
Now, we could, we could step back from this and, and look at this whole scenario from another angle. Let's do that. Biblical truth reveals to us that God is holy and mankind is not. We are sinners. And there is an eternal gulf between holy God and sinful man. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the one and the only one that bridges holy God and sinful man. This Jesus is the one who died and was resurrected. And that is the basis, the ground of our salvation. Now technically, technically, all you need for forgiveness, oh, let me start here. Forgiveness is a legal declaration by God. It's not something that you experience. You, you don't know, you know, you know like, like somebody uh, kick you in the shin. You, you don't know that God has forgiven you. It's, it happens in the court of heaven. There, there, is a, there is a sound of a gavel, and God says, the blood of Christ has now been applied to Rob's life. It happens just once. But I don't know the timing of that. I, all, all, all we need is a, 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 a declaration by God in order to be forgiven. I don't experience that. I know that happens after the fact. But I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't feel anything. I don't hear any voices. And technically... You don't need a resurrection in order to be forgiven. All you need is the death of a divinely approved substitute. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 tells us, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Okay, so we don't need a resurrection in order to be forgiven, but without a resurrection, prophecy is not fulfilled. Um, God is not, uh, the, the Father that is, is, is not uh, fully honored. And we don't fully experience the totality of hope and of joy. So for the fullness of our experience, we need the whole package. The death and the resurrection of Christ. It's, it is a unit. It is the sine qua non of our, subs, of, of our salvation. Now, I, pu I put some blanks in your notes that you might want to want to fill in because there there are some things that we we have to be sure of in order to stand with any kind of confidence that the death and the resurrection of Christ 
has indeed occurred and that we thereby have forgiveness in Christ by our belief in him. Okay, the first thing that we need to, to fr- have firmly established is, is that Jesus was really dead. Jesus was really dead. On the evening that he was betrayed, he was arrested, taken into custody, um, subsequently through the mock trial and, and uh, other travesties of, of justice or injustice, as the case may be. Um, Jesus was flogged as the Jews were in, instructed in the law. They, they, they didn't flog a man um, more than um, 39 times. The, the process of, of that re- required that the one who is flogged, was, his hands were tied, and he was uh, tied to, to a post where, where he was leaning forward. And then uh, the, the lictor would, with his flagellum, um, uh, wrap these, these, uh, these, these cords around the, the victim as he threw them, and they had bits of bone and, and rocks uh, attached to them. Uh, and, then, and then it was pulled back over the, uh, the tortured man's body. Now, it would, they would have gone around his, his legs, genitals, chest, torso, face. Uh, the entirety of his body was uh, subject to the, the beating, uh, the, the lashing. Um, that uh, killed many men, the beating just itself. Uh, Jesus didn't die there, though. He couldn't die there. They forced him to uh, to march to Golgotha, where he was crucified. And in, um, in in so doing, he was he was hung up on a cross. Uh, the, the process by which they they did so is they had the cross on the on the on the ground. The the victim would lay down and. He was, he was nailed to the cross, uh, two in each, each wrist, and then his, his feet together. And then they stood it up, and just the jolt of it falling into the hole is, was enough to, to uh, drive any man um, insane. The um, person who was crucified died because they couldn't exhale. So they, they, would, they would push up on this nail, uh, running through the median nerve. I, just, I mean, the whole thing is so torturously inhumane. It's, 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 it's beyond reason and rationality. Uh, but they would push up, and they would be able to exhale and then inhale, and then they would slump back down. A, 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 um, um, a healthy man... Was, was known to stay on a cross for three days, up to three days. Of course, he wasn't tortured like Jesus was before that, but he could be up there for three days. And he would die only 
after his legs gave out and he could not push up any further anymore. Jesus was crucified along with the, the thieves on either side of him. Uh, they, they were crucified on a, on a Friday morning. What's the next day in Jewish calendars? Sabbath day, Saturday. Um, and the Jews would not allow the Romans to execute anyone on the Sabbath day. So in this case, if a person was crucified on a Friday, um, their death was hastened by breaking their legs. So they could not push up anymore to exchange air into their lungs. And they died. Well, on the Friday that Jesus was crucified, it was dark, as dark as midnight at noon until three o'clock. When, and it was at that point that Jesus died. He gave up his spirit. Um, when, um, as, as they were approaching uh, Sabbath day, which began at six o'clock, um, it was reported to Pilate, the Roman governor, that uh, Jesus was dead. But the other two men were not. So they broke the legs of the other two men, but they didn't need to break Jesus' legs because he was already dead. And that was a little bit of a surprise to, uh, to Pilate, maybe. M maybe if you thought about it, you realized how physically weak the man was. But they... Um, uh, they wanted to make sure. So, so Pilate sent a soldier to the cross and with skill and precision, he'd done this before. This wasn't his first crucifixion rodeo. He tagged Jesus' side, pierced it with a spear, and he, he, he tagged his pericardium, the sack surrounding his heart. And outflowed water and blood separated. A sure and certain sign that Jesus was really all the way, not mostly, all the way dead. We've got to establish that fact. Jesus did, in fact, die. And the one who reported that out came from this wound on his side, water and blood, um, it was an eyewitness account by the Apostle John himself, who was standing right there. He saw it. We know that Jesus was fully dead. The second thing we have to establish is that Jesus was really buried. He was really dead. He was really buried. And this burial is, is the necessary transition between him dying and him rising again. One of the religious leaders, um, a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, Joseph of the region of Arimathea, he approached Pilate, hearing that Jesus was dead, and he said, hey, um, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of the body. Well, that was one less thing Pilate had to do. So he, he, he gave uh, Joseph of Arimathea the permission. And along with another 
co-collaborator by the name of Nicodemus, these two men took Jesus' body and placed it in a tomb that Joseph had there in Jerusalem. Now, Joseph was a, a, a notable man. Um, so was Nicodemus. There are some that say that Nicodemus was the head of the Sanhedrin. Um, well, I mean, in, in one sense, the, the high priest was, was the grand poobah. But, but uh, Nicodemus and Joseph were, uh, were, were men of influence, we can say that, in the Sanhedrin. And owning property there, everybody knew where Jesus was buried. In addition to that, the Jews were mm, a little concerned because of what Jesus had prophesied about himself. He said he was going to raise himself back from death. (laughs) That's crazy. That's crazy. A a, a dead person has no, 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 no power, no ability to do anything. Jesus said he's going to raise himself. Well, they had seen Jesus do some amazing miracles, including not too long before, Jesus raised this guy who had been in the tomb for four days, a man by the name of Lazarus. And it caused the Jews to be just a little skittish. We're not sure who this guy is or what he's capable of doing. And so they asked Pilate to put a detail at the tomb, and he did. There was a a group of four soldiers there 24-7. They rotated every three hours. They were there on site making sure that no hanky-panky, no funny business was going on there. Jesus was really placed in the tomb They sealed it up with a stone. The Romans put their seal on it. Nobody's going to do anything. Nobody's going to go anywhere. And the Romans made sure of it. Third thing we have to we have to notice is is that that, uh, not only was Jesus really dead and really buried, but he was really alive. All the Jews had to do, all the Romans had to do to to push aside all of this story about Jesus raising himself from the grave, all they had to do was produce a body. Of course, it had to be the body of Jesus, not just anybody. But all they had to do was say, here's the body. But they couldn't. They couldn't produce the body because there wasn't one. He was raised. He was alive. Hmm. Scriptures um, tell us that for a 40-day period of time, Jesus walked and talked and ate like any other man. Um, Certainly there were some abnormalities with his now-resurrected body. He was able to, to walk through walls, Don't know how all this took place, 
but there, there was a, there was a um, uh, one event where, where over, over 500 people saw Jesus alive after his death, after his burial. He was really alive. Now, that's uh, something that was absolutely shocking. We've never seen that before. But the fact that we haven't seen it doesn't mean that it's not true. Sir Edward Clark, 1841 to 1931, was an English lawyer and politician. He said this, As a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidence for the events of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive, and over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence, and a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class. And as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of faithful men, truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. E.M. Blakelock, 1903-1983, was chair of the classics at Auckland University. And he, uh, he wrote this, I claim to be a historian. My approach to the classics is historical, and I tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. Yeah, Jesus was really alive, really dead, really buried, and really resurrected. That's my introduction. <clears throat> if you turn with me to our text this morning in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, the big fisherman wrote this letter, a circular letter, to a group of churches in present day Turkey. And be, before he talks about anything else in this letter, he extols the wonder and the glories of our salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He starts off with this doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. I'm on the second page of your notes. You'll notice I've divided this section into five points. 
The first having to do with our salvation is the result of a divine choice by divine mercy. Peter begins verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. In theological terms, we, we refer to this verse as um, referring to the monergistic work of God. Big theological word that refers to the one single working of the divine. Mono, like monorail, one, one rail. This is the monergistic, the one working of God. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again by a divine choice, by God's sovereign will. Apart from anything in us, done by us, God chooses to show mercy upon whom he will have mercy and compassion upon whom he will show, He chooses to show compassion. We don't contribute anything to God's choice. Now, God is a rational being. He is a, a, um, uh, a thinking being. And he does what he does with, with, a, with a choice in mind. He specifically chooses something for a reason. Why does he choose Rob to, 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 uh, to, to, to save and to, to show mercy toward? Or, or any believer? Well, it, it had nothing to do with anything in me. Nothing. Now, there's so many people in our culture who think that, that God's going to show grace and mercy to them because they're basically a good person. And the Bible says that's rubbish. No, it is not on the basis of any so-called goodness. It's not on the basis of your faith, your obedience, your giving, your helping little old ladies across the street. Book of Titus, chapter 3, Paul writes, When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Well, what was it in me that God saw that He would choose me? Wrong question. There is nothing in you that God looked at and said, oh, I want that person in my heaven. God had a reason, but those reasons are hidden from us. He chose according to His mercy. 
according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Salvation is a divine, is, is an act of divine mercy. I put this quote in your notes from a John Allen. I deserved to be damned in hell, but God interfered. Purely by his mercy does he save. Second, as Peter talks about the the glories and wonders of our salvation, we are saved to a living hope. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. We have a hope that lives, that energizes, that, uh, that, that beats strong and true within our soul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Alexander Solzhenitsyn you got to kind of have to sneeze while you're saying his last name. 1918 to 2008. He was a Russian novelist and historian. He was a political activist who was very strong, um, very vocal in his opposition of communism. He He fought nobly in World War II for his homeland. And in 1945, he wrote a letter criticizing Joseph Stalin. He did not think that communism was a good system. He did not think that it was an appropriate way to govern a country. And he wrote a letter, in, he didn't write the letter to Stalin, but Stalin found out about the letter. And subsequently, it earned him eight years of forced labor in a gulag. With three additional years in exile. He writes that while he was there in the gulag, prisoners were beaten and killed for uh, refusing to work. So the situation was so desperate, so bleak, so painful, so inhumane that he wanted to end his own life. And he knew how to do it. He would simply lean on his shovel and not work. He knew the, the guards would come, they would beat him, and he would subsequently die. While he assumed that posture, a fellow believer came, and with his shovel, drew a cross in the dirt right in front of Alexander. 
And then before a, a, a soldier could see what he was doing, with his foot he rubbed the dirt and erased the cross he had made. Alexander wrote later that that reminder of the cross and of his living hope energized him and gave him endurance he never knew he had. A living hope. A pastor once received news that he had a terminal illness. And he said this to his congregation, the next Sunday. He said, after my doctor visit, I left the, park, uh, the car in the parking lot and I walked the five miles from his office to my home. I looked toward the majestic mountain that I love. And I looked at the river in which we all rejoice I looked at the stately trees that are always God's own poetry to my own soul. Then in the evening, I looked up into the great sky where God was lighting his lamps. And I said, I may not see you many more times, but mountain... I will be alive when you are gone. And river, I will be alive when you cease running toward the sea. And stars, I will be alive when you have fallen from your sockets in the great pulling down of the universe. Ours is a living hope. It is not only alive that it energizes us today, it is sure and certain for our tomorrow. This life can end like that. But that's just this life. Those who are among this group of people that Peter is talking about, those who put their faith and trust in Christ, these people have a living hope. Third, our salvation is by divine accomplishment. It's not something that we have done um, it's, it's what God has done on our behalf. First Corinthians, or rather, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He, that is the Father, made him, that is the Son, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father made the Son 
where the sin of all those who would believe. At Jesus' death, while on, um, on the cross, just, just, just moments before his, his, his passing, Jesus said, one, one of the sta- say, seven sayings that he, he made from the cross, Jesus said simply, it is finished. What's finished? His mission was finished. Uh, atonement was finished. What he was sent to do was finished. He still had to have the resurrection in order to finish prophecy, in order to finish the glory of the Father, in order to give um, uh, finishing touches to our hope. Fourth, our salvation is to an unwavering inheritance. Look back at the text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in order to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. When we think about an earthly inheritance, because of our age, we may be too old to enjoy it. Because of sickness, disease, we may be too feeble to enjoy it. Uh, Maybe because of inflation, there may not be enough of it to enjoy. But our inheritance in heaven, uh, it is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, it will not be compromised, it cannot be corrupted in any way, it's reserved preserved ready for us we are waiting it finally our salvation is protected divinely verse 5 Peter writes who are that is you are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Nothing that we can do can procure our salvation. Similarly, nothing that we can do can protect our salvation. That protection is a monergistic work. We are justified by God's mercy. We are glorified. We are welcomed into our inheritance by God's mercy. It's a monergistic work. He protects it. Book of um, 
book of Philippians chapter 1. Paul writes in verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What God starts, he most definitely finishes. I've told you before as we have been walking through the Gospel of John, chapter 10 is is one of my favorites. In, In John 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Divinely protected. Nothing will come between you and your inheritance. It is Christ's death that secured it and his resurrection that puts an exclamation point beside it. It belongs to those who believe, everyone who believes. Nothing I do causes my salvation. Nothing I do can uncause my salvation. The demonstrating proof of our salvation is found in the resurrection. I close with this quote by Charles Spurgeon. I put this in your notes as well. Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. I risk my whole eternity on the resurrection. That is the hope the ground, the basis of all that we will enjoy. This package, the death and resurrection of Christ, is indeed the sine qua non of our salvation. Our blessed God, we thank you for preserving your word that we might know with certainty and clarity all that you have accomplished in Christ. There certainly is mystery there is intrigue, there is wonder, there is, uh, there is plenty to be amazed at as we, as we explore the depths of what happened at Christ's death and resurrection. But we very simply come back to the realization that those who put their trust, their hope, their faith, their confidence in the Lord Jesus and His work will most assuredly be saved. This salvation of which we have been talking, this inheritance, this living hope, this this belongs to those who believe and trust and submit to. Father, would you be pleased right now to find in this group of people, indeed even in my own heart, one that is submissive to you, wanting your rule in my life more than any 
other thing. For your glory do we pray these things. In the name of the risen one.